Uh, back again to our study of Exodus uh, and this two-part mini-series that we started last week uh, on the topic of adoption. Uh, as far as our study in Exodus is concerned, the series came from the fourth and fifth I will statement of God found in Exodus 6. We just read it, right? Uh, seven I will statements found in uh, 6 all the way to 8. Uh, we've taken up five of them. Um, this is part of it. This is fourth and fifth. Uh, we started last week, fourth and fifth I will statements. And I encourage those of you who missed uh, the first part of this uh, series on adoption last week to go back and watch last week's uh, message. Now, uh, before we continue with part two, let's do a quick review, uh, especially for the benefit of those who missed it. Uh, last week I said that uh, adoption is one aspect of God's salvation uh, that is rarely focused on or talked about in churches. We always talk about the main three when it comes to salvation. What are the three ages, aspects of salvation? Justification, sanctification, glorification. Love talking about the first and the last. Second one is the hardest. That's all of us. Right? Because it actually involves something that we, quote unquote, have to do. Um, but as we need to study it, we need to understand uh, you know, the gospel and what, what it means, especially adoption. Um, we need to understand that sanctification shouldn't be that, be that hard. It's becoming who you're supposed to be at this point. Um, so, uh, hopefully that's what we're going to get out of the study in, in uh, the doctrine of adoption or the doctrine of sonship. Um, uh, again, if you truly understand what being adopted by God means, uh, it will hopefully give us a clearer picture of justification and sanctification and what it means to call ourselves Christians okay? or sons and daughters of God. Uh, we're going to get into all of that hopefully today. I also said last week that adoption is what helps uh, Christians from going to the extreme of legalism on one end and the other extreme of licentiousness on the other. Um, how and how does that work? How does adoption prevent us or help us not to go to either extreme? Well, we'll, we'll unpack that as we as we go on. Um, so. These extremes are, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in like layman's terms, they're called works theology. Uh, you heard of that? And there's the extreme grace theology. Adoption helps us to go on either extreme, or not to go to either extreme. Um, understanding the doctrine of adoption speaks to both uh, the justification part of salvation, uh, justification of the gospel, and the effect of this justification in the believer. That's why adoption is that middle ground that holds us right in the middle of these two um, aspects of salvation. Uh, last week I said that, uh, similar to human adoption, uh, God's adoption has a legal aspect and cost to it. Remember that part? You're adopting a, a child, there's a legal aspect to it. The identity of the child that you're adopting. If you fill out paperwork, you have to pay costs, the cost of doing that legally. God's adoption is similar to that. Um, I said that the legality of God's, adopt, or God's redemption and its cost 
not only about our justification or being made right before God, as far as the legal aspect is concerned, it also brought our what our adoption, in which as we as individuals have been legally forgiven or justified. How? What was the cost of all that to God? The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The cost that God paid for the penalty of our sins. To become a part of that transaction, uh, by God's grace, He has given us the faith to believe in the work of Christ. And when that happened, our identity was legally changed. From that of sinners at hundred daughters of God. Mm. So we're not just as far as our legal standing for God is concerned, we are adopted. We have become sons and daughters. Where before we were, we were enemies. So technically speaking, we are already children of God at justification. What's the legal aspect of justification is done? We are already considered as children of God. Even before knowing and experiencing what it means to have God as our Father. So if you adopt somebody from the Philippines, let's say, once the, the legal aspect is done, that child in the Philippines, whoever that is, is legally your child. You already adopted that child. Hopefully that uh, short summary puts us all on the same page. Uh, now this next part of the doctrine of adoption is also called the doctrine of sonship. And this is a part of adoption that speaks on sanctification. In other words, this is the proof or evidence that we are actually children of God. That we have actually been adopted into His family. And this is the root or the foundation of what it means to be adopted by God. That's why last week, remember I said that going in the Philippines, there's this stigma about uh, adoption as negative. I'm from It's bad. You know, there's a bad message to it. It's like you've been abandoned, nobody wants you. Um, you no right, yeah, that's right. Um, but that's not. You said that no, it's not. I read you guys a, a quote from an article about somebody who was adopted, remember? And she said, no, that's not what adoption is. And we're about to see why. Okay? So at the root of the of adoption, the doctrine of adoption, uh, being adopted by God, is this doctrine called sonship. Uh, last week I said that that expression, Son of God, refers both to male and females, okay, uh, can refer to many different people as well. Uh, we said that uh, it could refer to angels, sons of God, uh, or, uh, check it out, Job 1.6, or to the whole nation of Israel in Exodus. The whole nation of Israel was called the Son of, of God. Uh, in Exodus 4, 20-23, and Hosea 11:1, 1. Son, son uh, can, also can also refer to individual Israelites, not the whole nation, but individual Israelites. Uh, he referred to King David before he was. Uh, in 2 Samuel 7:14, he was called the son of God. Uh, now in the New Testament, uh, again, the phrase son of God can refer to Christians. Right? Romans 8:15. So when I say, who in here are sons and daughters of God? Who would raise their hand? The Christians. Right? Who are the Christians here? <laughs> if, you were, if I was to ask, who here is the son of uh, Jeff Bezos? 
you don't even know who Jeff Bezos is. <laughs> the richest, the richest guy in the world. I'll be proud. Yes, I'm Jeff Bezos' kid. But God, I don't know. So, uh, could refer to individual Christians. Uh, that term, son of God. Or it could ultimately refer to Jesus himself. The ultimate son of God. John 17, 1. So the question that I left with you last week was, what does it mean to be called the Son of God? Or, what does it mean to be a Christian? Okay. If, biblically speaking, this statement could point to many different people, not to Jesus, not just to Christ. What does it mean to be called Son of God? Now, uh, according to uh, Don Carson, the, the phrase Son of God, even though it could be talking about different persons, even angels, biblically, it carries with it the connotation of sonship. Okay? Son, sonship, or that of being a child of God. Nowadays, uh, being someone's child uh, usually points back to your parents. Uh, because, uh, like me, my name is, my full name, you guys don't know, you all know me as Sonny, right? Uh, my full name is Clint. Robert's son, okay. Espiritu, <laughs> Ayala, no, Espiritu, Guzman, that's my name, okay? <laughs> that Robert's son part has nothing to do with my mother's initial, you know, my mother's maiden name or anything. That's just Robert's son, <laughs> right? It's funny because when Kate came out, she also had that name, Robert's son, but she's a girl, so it doesn't work. <laughs> but... That's what it is, Robert's son. Usually when you say son of, it refers to or points to your parents, namely your father, mainly your father. Okay? It points to your father. Um, now, biblically speaking, that's not how sonship is established. Biblically speaking, that's not how sonship is established. Uh, Dr. Carson, again, and I quote, uh, he said, the overwhelming majority of sons in the ancient world ended up doing vocationally what their fathers did. And girls ended up doing vocationally what their mothers did. So being a son back in those days, sonship back in those days, is determined if you're doing what your father does if you're a son. Or doing what your mother does if you're a if you're daughter. So my parents, again, using myself as an example, my parents are both accountants. For me to be truly called son of Robert or Robert's son, I have to do accounting. <laughs> that's, that's just how it is in the, in, in, the, in the ancient world, right? That's just how it is because there were no colleges. There was no, I, I want to be a lawyer. I want to be that. No, you get taught by your parents and what? They did. Ultimately, that's what you become. That's what you do. Um, that's what sonship is in the ancient world. You end up doing what your dad does. Stephen should be a TTC driver. Uh, <laughs> right? You know, Damien and Dante should be working for the city. They're Derek's sons. They should be working for the city. That's, that's what it means. That, that's what sonship 
conveys or means in biblical times. Uh, so it's associated in part with family identity uh, and vocation. Okay? In Japan, it's still happening right now. Uh, if you're, a, like, I don't know if you, you can watch this documentary, the Euro Dreams of Sushi. I don't know if you guys watched that documentary. Ah, see, a foodie here. Yiro Dreams of Sushi is a story about Yiro, who is a sushi chef. And that's all he did. From the time he was a kid to the time he's 100 years old, he's almost 100 years old, he did sushi. Guess what his son did? Sushi. That's in Japan. That's in still Japan. Still happening. That's why there, that's are, why some there are some stalls. stalls in Japan that are hundreds of years old. How do they keep going like that? Because... The knowledge is passed from father to son, father to son. Oh, nobody knows that uh, quote. It's from Bloodsport. Anyway, <laughs> it is, that's what happens. That's sonship in Scripture. Nowadays, yeah, we got our kids, you know, you do whatever you want. You don't have to be like me. Uh, you know, do whatever you want as far as vocation is concerned. But in the Scriptures, it was all about doing what your father did. And that's what your family was known for. That's why Jesus, uh, in Scripture, wasn't called son of Joseph. He was called son of a carpenter. Matthew 13.55. Why? Because his earthly father was a carpenter. Uh, in fact, some people believe that that's what he did before he went into ministry. He just carpentry. Uh, he built stuff. So, um, so another example was... Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, when uh, Jesus said, Blessed are the peace peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Literally, and not children of God. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that anyone who acts like a peacemaker shows themselves to be part of God's family, with God as their father and supreme peacemaker. Okay? Say that again. Anyone who acts, when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, Jesus is referring to anyone who acts like a peacemaker. They show themselves to be part of God's family, with God as their father and supreme peacemaker. Now, that's not to say that you have to be a peacemaker to become a Christian. Or that Christians, or all Christians, are peacemakers. Obviously not. There are some Christians who... Love to fight. <laughs> right? They would love to start arguments. They love to start divisions. They're obviously not peacemakers, but are they still sons, still of, sons God? of God? Maybe, maybe. But when Jesus said blessed are the peacemakers, that doesn't that mean, that, doesn't all mean that all Christians are peacemakers. What the metaphor says is that if you are a peacemaker, then you are acting God-ish. You know, God-ish. Ish means God-like. Because right? God is the ultimate peacemaker. If he's your father, you have to act like your father. Or God-ish. Right? And then the Bible would then say, you are son of God. You get the, you get the point of sonship? I'll give you another example. Check out John 8.33. Somebody flash it? No. John 8.33. Okay, there. 
They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? This is Jesus uh, arguing with some Jewish uh, people. Uh, 39 to 40. John 8, 39 to 40. 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. There it is, sonship, right? But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. So in this example, what Jesus is doing, he's arguing with these Jews that they are not sons of Abraham because they do not act or did not do what Abraham would have done or acted, how Abraham did. Jesus argued that Abraham did not seek to kill him, but instead Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Christ and saw, and saw it and was glad. If Abraham was there, Jesus is saying, he would not act the way you're acting right now. He would be excited. But these Jews are different. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to nail him to the cross. That's why Jesus said, you can't be sons of Abraham, right? Because you're doing the opposite as Abraham did. You can't call yourself sons of Abraham. Then the Jews replied and said to Jesus in, in the next few verses, verse 41, they said, uh, well, you know, we are actually sons of God, not just Abraham. Jesus replied again, no way. How can you be, how can you call yourself sons of God? God knows me and loves me. You don't even recognize who I am. Meanwhile, the demons did. So he's arguing with them. Don't call yourself son. You're not doing what your father does. So Jesus goes on and says, You can't be sons of God. Instead, let me tell you whose sons you are. Check out 43, John 8. Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? Whose sons are they? 44. <laughs> Hello? 44. Okay. <laughs> 44. Whose sons are they? You are of your father. The devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. 45. But because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why don't you not believe me? Whoever is of God... Here's the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you're not. <laughs> it's a pretty simple argument. You, can, you can't call yourself son of God and hate Christ if you know the truth. But when you hear the truth, ah, no, no way. You hate it. Right? Or maybe because you're not of God. That's why... You don't hear the truth. So basically, what basically Jesus is saying, you're, saying, saying you're acting in a certain way. Since you're acting in a certain way, 
You must belong to a certain family. You must belong to a certain father. And it's not God. <laughs> if it's not God, it's got to be somebody else. Who? Jesus said it straight out. The devil is your father. And Paul said the same thing, okay? To the Israelites in Romans 4, what, is he, what did he say? The true sons of Abraham are not the ones who are descendants of Abraham, but those who act like Abraham, as far as Abraham's faith is concerned. So not all descendants, if you read Romans 9, 10, 11, not all descendants of Abraham are the true Israel or the true Israelites. Only those who act like, who have the faith of Abraham. One more example, sonship. I mean, the, best, the best one, obviously, is Jesus himself. Because he's son of God, right? So check out Matthew 3.17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my, with whom I am well pleased. It's one of those verses that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit made an appearance. What was the Holy Spirit as here? The, the dove. Remember, this is Jesus' baptism, right? And then they heard a voice, that's God the Father. And then Jesus is in the water. This is my beloved Son. So God said, that's my Son. So now, how does Jesus live out? How does Jesus show that he's the true son of God? Check out what the author of Hebrews says. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to us, or spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, in, in verse 2, he spoke to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Three, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So how does Jesus show his Sonship. Right? Talk about like father, like son. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact imprint. Not just by looks. Nobody knows what God looks like. So he's talking about something else. Right? Like Eli. Eli is... You can tell he's my son because he doesn't look like our mailman or uh, <laughs> Eli's my son because he looks like me, but physically. This, you can't say that this is a physical description of who Jesus is as a son of God as far as looks are concerned because nobody knows what God looks like. So what is he talking about? What is Hebrews, the author of Hebrews talking about? God's nature. As far as God's nature is concerned, as far as God's character is concerned, that's, that's what he looks like in Jesus, right? Nature of God. Or more literally, uh, the impress. You know what impress means? A vivid impression, like when you put your finger down like that, press it hard. 
what your thumb looks like goes into the whatever paper. Get your thumbprint, right? An impress of it. Exactly the same. He's the impress of God. Or the author of Hebrews also describes Jesus as God's subsistence. Subsistence. What does that mean? Subsistence versus existence. What's existence is a state of being. Okay. Well, when we say Jesus existed, when God existed, he was already a being when God was a being. They're both there. It's the state of their existence, right? The state of being. What's subsistence? Subsistence is the reality of being. So when you compare that to existence, the reality of being versus the state of being, the author of Hebrews says Jesus is the subsistence of God. The reality of being God is in Christ himself. You get that? Not just that he existed. His image, his whole being, his nature is like God himself. That's how much Jesus resembled God, so to speak, as far as his nature and character is concerned. That's why he's called Son of God. What about his works? Check out John 1, 1 to 5. John 1, 1 to 5 says, In the beginning, where do you last saw that? Genesis. In the beginning was the Word. Who is the Word? Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. What did he do? All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Why? Because at that time, how did God make? By word alone. Right? And then in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So does Jesus' works show as well as his nature show that he is a real son of God? Brought dead people back to life. Miracles happened, created from nothing. True son of God. So at its essence, being a son of God is acting, again, Godish or God-like. Or having the nature of your heavenly father. And so now, when we apply this to adoption, being made a son and daughter of God through the law, those of us who are adopted into God's family are then be transformed, changed, to act and live in a way that reflects the nature of who God is. That's what it means to be called the son of God. You act it, do you act like God-ish? When people see you, do they see you? Oh, something different about you. You're not like everybody else. Isn't that a description of God? When we say God is holy, that means he's not like everybody else. He's set apart. He's different. Is that us? When I look at you and 
I look at everybody else. Do, will I see? Will people see the difference? There's this um, uh, clinical psychologist, author, professor. His name is Jordan Peterson, if I don't know if you guys know. Um, he is a, before he was a self-proclaimed atheist. I don't know about now. They're saying that he's, he's seen the light. Uh, he's not an atheist anymore. Who knows? But this is his argument, okay, when it comes to Christians and when it comes to believers, okay? He's always asked, do you believe in God? Jordan Peterson. People always ask him, do you believe in God? And he's always answered, I hate that question. Why? Because he said this, is what you believe what you say or what you act out? Is what you believe what you say or what you act out. And then Peterson goes on to say this. It's a long quote, but it's like worth it. Okay, let's, let's just, just stay with me here. Peterson goes on to say this. Let's say that you say that you believe in God. What effect does that have on your behavior if you believe it? Are you all in on your beliefs? Are you sacrificing everything to this transcendent entity that, pro, that you proclaim belief in? Or are you in the same situation that the Catholic Church seems to be right now? What is he talking about? Given the endless pedophilic scandals, let's say, which seem rather serious, are all the people committing these heinous acts, if you ask them, do you believe in God, what are they going to say? The Catholic Church priests have been covering up all kinds of sexual immorality for a long time now. In fact, there's a documentary on Netflix about that. A nun was killed just to cover up the priest's sexual immorality. And they've been covering it up. They've been covering up these priests. So Jordan Peterson is saying, if a Catholic is asked, especially a priest, if a Catholic priest is asked, do you believe in God? What do you think they're going to say? You'd think the answer would be yes, given that they're like priests. And yet, what's the evidence? Well, the evidence isn't exactly so clear that the mere statement or the acting out of the ritual is no indication of your right to say that you believe. Because what right do I have to say that? To make that claim. I believe in God. What's the claim when you say I believe in God? Is that claim that, that I am a good person somehow? Because you think that if you believe in God, actually and seriously, that you'd be a good person right now. And so if that hasn't happened in some sort of miraculous sense, so that you're the, per you're the best person you could possibly imagine being and on, on, on an ongoing basis and then terrified of deviating from that path in a serious manner, then I don't see why you have the right to say that you believe in God. That's why he hates that question. When people ask him, do you believe in God? What, what does that mean? Does that mean you're good? If not, then what does believing in God mean? 
Vinay goes on and quotes Nietzsche. One of the things that Nietzsche said, and this guy's a philosopher, Nietzsche said, uh, one of the things that Nietzsche said about Christianity is this, is that far as, he, as far as he's concerned, there's only one Christian, and he died on the cross. There's nobody else. Gandhi said the same thing. You know Gandhi? Gandhi said, I love your Christ, but I hate your Christians. Why, 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 does he, why do they say that? Nietzsche, why does he say that? There's only one Christian? He died on the cross? So Jordan Peterson is basically arguing, if you're not doing what you say, or if you're not doing what you say you believe, then you can't say you believe. <laughs> so stop asking me <laughs> if I believe. Because you can't say you believe. Does it make sense? Who, says, who here says, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If you're honest, right? Makes a lot of sense, right? Even with the idea that being a son and daughter of God, even with the idea of sonship, it makes sense. Because we're supposed to be doing who we claim our father is and what he's doing. But we don't. <laughs> Does that mean we have no right to say that we're Christians? We have no right to say that we are Sons of God, none of us, as far as Peterson is concerned, none of us can call ourselves that. But Peterson, being a former atheist himself, missed one thing. What do you think he missed? The doctrine of adoption. <laughs> the doctrine of adoption. Remember, the doctrine of adoption, being adopted welcomed into the family of God, meant that God must first go through the legal process of adoption. And that legal process would mean redeeming a sinner first and then adopting that sinner. That redemption means that the sinner must first repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus to be saved. Now that believing in Christ part, the justification part, that's where Peterson is missing. That's where Peterson's argument is missing. Why is that so important? Because of Peterson's claim that you can't say that you believe or you don't have the right to say that you believe and therefore call yourself a Christian unless you are exactly like Jesus. That's his claim. If belief is that of what you are acting out, then none of us can say we believe, which makes sense. But that's without the cross. And that's where the gospel comes in. Why? Because that is exactly the reason why Jesus died on the cross to begin with. That's exactly the reason why God had to redeem us because none of us are exactly like Jesus. Jesus is the second Adam, right? Where did we all come from right now? Supposed to be from Adam. That's, our, that's where we originated from. But those of us who are born again, we are born into a different family. We are born into a different father. 
But still, when it comes to sonship, we don't act the way we should. We're supposed to act like Jesus. But again, that's where the gospel comes in. Because without the gospel, then Jordan Peterson is right. None of us can claim that we believe. Because we're all not acting out, always, what it means, what it looks like to be God-ish. Right? But because of God's grace, what did he do? He adopted us, made us part of his family. And as part of his family, with him as our good father, we will inevitably become more and more like him, the way Christ was an exact imprint of his nature. We will. Right? What are we taking up again? The seven I wills of God, right? And as we continue to grow in him, God's promise, I will do this. I will adopt you. I will make you my son. Now what's the, what's the telltale sign that you are? If it's not your action. Well, those of us who are growing in faith. And when I say growing in faith, I said this at the beginning of this whole whole section of uh, Exodus. When you grow in faith, inevitably you will grow in works. Works is the way you live. It is not just ministry. It's the way you act, the way you live, the way you react to other people. The way you deal with other people, especially those who don't love you, don't even like you. Why? Because that's God-ish. That's how God acted, right? When God sent his son, he didn't send him when we were ready to be saved. No, while we were yet sinners. You act like that. Do we act like that? Are we growing in that direction in faith and in works? Because those who slowly act God-ish start loving the things that God loves, hating the things that God hates, loving those who hate you, sacrificing even at a cost to yourself in order that others may be saved. Those are the true sons of God. Amen? Don't be like those Jews in, in Matthew, please. Um, shut up, Pastor, man. I, I came to church. Isn't that enough? Is that God-ish? And then outside of church, somebody else. Somebody knows us by something else. Like We're, we're not the same people. We're not acting the way we profess. That's why there's people like, out there like Jordan Peterson. Let me close by reading another quote. Uh, this time from the article of that uh, lady in the Philippines that was adopted. Uh, she wrote this. Uh, the Gentiles back then were seen similarly to how the world views adopted, chil- adopted children today. Aliens, intruders, the black sheep. The Jews, on the other hand, were viewed similarly to how the world sees biological children today. Pure blood, heirs, the real descendants. In a family setting, it would look like 
I'm the Gentile and my brother is the Jew. But because we were raised in a family that celebrates adoption, and because we both understand that we belong to our parents, we both share equal, equally in the rights that come with, their, with being their children. If my brother wanted to ask something from my parents, I could simply ask them the same thing too. He has a phone. I have a phone. He has a room. I have a room. In the love, treatment, and security we received, there really was no difference. My parents secured my identity as their child, but they primarily secured my identity as in Christ Jesus. Because of that, I have the privilege of saying I was adopted twice, once on earth and forever in Jesus. And not only loved by an amazing family, but mainly loved by an amazing God, that he would pay the ultimate price to save me, forgive me, and give me hope security, and a divine purpose. So the statement, ampun ka lang, I say, and she was adopted twice. We, think about this, okay? We are biological and adoptive children. How, do, how are we biological? Because we are born into it as well. Right? That's why we're called born again. <laughs> we're not just adopted, adopted. We're biological children as well as adopted. How secure must you feel if that's you as a Christian? More secure than her. Right? What's that, what does that mean again? As Christians and as living in this world and living as a Christian, imperfect Christian that we, that we all are. Well, keep listening. In God's family, once you're adopted, you will be transformed to become one of his sons and daughters. Okay? How do we know this? Because God has predestined all true believers for this. Predestined, okay? I know a lot of people say, ah, let's not talk about that. That's ah, just going to be... Uh, you know, we're just going to argue. And, uh, predestination? Predestination is different than election, first of all. Let's get that clear. We're all afraid of arguments when it comes to election. But predestination? All believers are predestined. Right? Predestined to be what? Predestined to continuously grow, to act more and more God-ish. And more and more Christ-like. Is that you? Is your growth in faith being accompanied by your growth in action or the way you are as a human being, the way you are and when, you come, when it comes to your character? Are you growing in that? Are you becoming more patient, more loving, more giving, more? Remember, the doctrine of sonship says that a son will ultimately become like the father. Or will ultimately act like the Father and do what the Father does. This is the evidence that you are truly a son or daughter. And also remember how you became that way. How you became a son or daughter. Because you were, you were legally bought back, legally redeemed, legally justified. Where God the Father legally did everything, paid for everything, so that your former identity can be changed 
to that of son or daughter of the living God. That's why I said in the beginning uh, of this message that the doctrine of adoption helps a believer to not go the extreme of legalism or works theology. Okay. How, does the, how does the doctrine of adoption not, you know, prevent you from going to that extreme of legalism or works theology? How? Because being adopted by God through justification shows us that being a child of God is something that we cannot and do not work for. Just like that girl who wrote that article. She doesn't have to prove herself to be a children of her adoptive parents. No. Because legally, she is. Right? Same with us. We don't live our lives talking about, I got to keep pleasing God, otherwise he might kick me out. There's no kicking out. Legally, you're already. Right? That's why it, 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 it prevents us from going to that one extreme of legalism. Um, because our adoption was done by God alone. It is all done through the redemptive work of Christ and the grace of God to give us faith to believe in the work of Christ. Well, for those of us who believe, we are children of God because God freely, willingly, joyfully adopted us. Same with human adoption. Right? Some of these adoptions, same, same uh, with the example that I gave you with that uh, woman in the Philippines, they already had a son. So why get another child? <laughs> There's some pe people right now, uh, a lot in, our, uh, in the Christian community, that has four or five biological children, but still adopts. It's a, it's a self, you know, choice of the parent to do that. It's not that the kid was so beautiful that had to adopt this kid. They're not dogs. Like, right? God chose to. He didn't have to, but he chose to adopt us. Right? He didn't have to, but he did it anyway. We don't deserve to be adopted, but he did it anyway. Out of his great love. Not only that, the doctrine of adoption help us, helps us not to be licentious or go to the extreme grace theology. What does that mean? Oh, since I'm adopted, since I'm a child, I can do whatever I want. It prevents us from going that way. Right? Why? Because being a child of God means that sooner or later we will act God-ish. You're growing into that. That even if it takes a lifetime, God will train us, He will discipline us to become like His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. How are we sure about that? Are we so sure? How, how sure are we? We're sure because God already predestined that to happen. So if you read Romans 8, uh, 28 to 30, here I'm going to close. Can you guys read it? <laughs> too fast, too fast. Go back to 28. You should just memorize that. Okay, there you go. <laughs>
Are you an adopted son of God? Can you call yourself a son of God? Raise your hands if you can. <laughs> I know some people are like, ah. The next thing you know, they're in an argument outside. Ah. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> it's a really hard topic, right? Because I don't want to come across as making you guys doubt. Am I Christian? Am I? No, that's not the purpose of this. And this is why I say on Wednesdays too. This is not for you to doubt yourself if whether or not you're saved or not. Again, just like what First uh, John says, if you're on your way to, let's say, a party, there, uh, somebody gave you directions, there's road marks, right? There's landmarks that they will give you. Okay, uh, come to my house. You'll see a gas station by the corner of so-and-so. And then from there, you exit the highway. And then from there, you exit blah, 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 blah. You follow those, your, those landmarks. Right? Every time you see a landmark, you know you're going the right way. Right? Christian life is the same. What are the landmarks? Fruit of the Spirit. Am I being more patient? Am I being more loving, kind? those are all God-ish things. Do I love my enemies? Can I forgive? Those are all God-ish things. You see those things happening in your life? Sometimes it hurts to see it, right? Because I don't want to forgive this person. But you have to. And then there will come a time where you, you just do. Because you've grown into it. Right? And what happens when, oh man, I'm, I'm lost. There's no landmarks here. The instruction says this, 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 and this. I, I, I don't see that in my life. What tells you that you are still a child of God, a son of God? What do you do? When you get lost on the road and you have directions, what do you do? You, what does GPS tell you? Turn around, make a U-turn, blah, blah, blah. Right? Same thing. What is that turning around? Repentance. And then you go back. And God, and will God say, oh, that's it. You're not invited anymore. You, you got lost. No, you're still invited. You're just going to get there probably a few minutes late. <laughs> but that's the Christian life. So Jordan Peterson's analysis of faith is true if you're a legalist. <laughs> if there is no grace. But since there is, that's where all of us are in that umbrella of grace. Because I'm not saying you can't get lost. I'm not saying <laughs> you have to keep going straight. You can't make any mistakes. We do. But when we do, what proves that we are still sons of God is that you keep repenting. First John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, I'll be faithful and just to forgive and cleanse you of your unrighteousness. Go back to that. Then you keep looking for these landmarks again. Now, if there's no landmarks and you're lost and you don't care, then no. <laughs> Maybe you're not invited. Maybe you don't want to go there. Maybe you want to go somewhere else. And God says, yeah, go there. You what would for sure, I know what you will find there, death. Right? 
What does Matthew 7 say? A wide road leads to death, destruction. Only few go that narrow way. Only few follow the landmarks and actually get to the end by God's grace. Those are the true sons of God. I hope I could reveal them to you right now. I hope it can be revealed. But what does Romans 8 say? That the sons of God will be revealed when the time comes. Tribulation, when all that stuff happens, that's when the sons of God will be revealed. By then, all you have to go with is your faith and these landmarks. Am I growing? Am I progressing when it comes to loving others? Am I progressing when it comes to serving the church, ministry? Am I progressing when it comes to my patience, when it comes to, you know, people getting on my nerves? How, how do I react now? Is that changing? Is it getting worse? Or You keep complaining about your whatever. Some people just complain just to complain. You keep doing that. Or are you are always looking for, you know, the things that God has given you and give thanks. And be, it's like what Paul says in Philippians, be content. Are we growing into that? Sons of God will. Because we will be predestined to do so. And you will see it. The way you live, the way you treat other people. But, uh, again, I want to stress, our focus is on Exodus 6. It is the I wills of God. Ultimately, it is God that will do it through you or in you. Right? But is there a part of you that has to do something? Yes. But it is God who will complete it. Trust that. We trust his word. We trust his promises. Then, yes, Romans 8.28 will be true for your your life. That's what it means to be adopted by God as far as the Bible is concerned. God will do this. God will adopt those who will be saved. He will do it and he will not fail. Amen? So far we talked about five I will. Next week we'll finish the section of these I will statements with the last two I will statements. This time dealing with the promise of possession. I like that topic. Forget this adoption. <laughs> Promise of possession. This is the glorification part of salvation. I hope you can join us again for that. Let's all bow down our heads. Let's pray. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you. Gracious, gracious, gracious.